Welcome to the American University of Beirut and this week's episode of Professors at Work, where we talk to scholars and researchers and professors at AUB and what they're researching, what they're finding, and why it matters to the world. I'm very pleased to have as my guest this week, Lina Abu Habib, who is a senior policy fellow at the Isam Faris Institute at the American University of Beirut. She's worked for several decades in many, many different regional, national, and global organizations dealing with gender equality and gender equal rights. She's now a senior Middle East and North Africa advisor for the Global Fund for Women, which is an American-based NGO that is one of the leading donors for women's activism groups around the world. Uh, Lena, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rami. It's a pleasure. You've been doing so many interesting things in so many different areas that it's hard to know where to start. So let me ask you, from your experience nationally in Lebanon, regionally in the um, Middle East, internationally, the many things you've done, where do you find the common thread that brings together women activists, let's say in the MENA region first, and then we'll later talk globally? Yes, that's a very interesting uh, question to start with. I think the common thread, the uh, point of departure, is women's subordination. And then uh, for us, it's trying to unpack where does this subordination come comes from? I know, I know that uh, people will find it a little bit too strong to say subordination, but it is a situation uh, of daily acts of subordination. Uh, and the idea in every setup, in every country or in every region, is try to unpack and understand where does it come from, how is it reproduced, and how do you get rid of it? Uh, what are the processes that are likely to get rid of it? So I think. Um, our point, and let me talk about the MENA region first, let me talk about the Middle East, North Africa. Our point of departure is a system that subordinates women. We call it politically a patriarchal system. Academically, we prefer, in a scholarly, more scholarly term, we prefer to talk about it as subordination because we're talking about both the public sphere, where we are, and the private sphere, which is the, uh, which is the household. And I think this is where all sorts of activism has started, uh, confronting the situation, naming it, defining it, seeing where it comes from, and then how do you dismantle it, uh, so to speak. And throughout this process, I think there's, there are many similarities between feminist activism in this region and then beyond, is the fact that we all realize that feminist knowledge is important, that feminist, knowledge that is uh, conceptualized, designed and produced with a feminist lens, an epistemology that is feminist. That, and that's why as feminists, as feminist activists or researchers, we do depart from the mainstream way of doing things because it invisibilizes, not only does it invisibilize women, it invisibilizes all sorts of uh, uh, groups. It invisibilizes the LGBT uh, community, uh, similarly with uh, women in rural areas, etc. And the poor. Everywhere. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and by doing this, it actually replicates gender inequality. That's why I've been, you know, like many feminists in my generation, kind of, uh, and we still are in this paradigm of feminism is global. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not homogeneous. We depart on many issues between those of us who consider themselves li liberal feminists or those of us who consider themselves radical feminists or uh, the feminism of women of color, etc. But our starting point is a system that is not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and it's and it's not fair and it's unjust not by coincidence it's not by you know that we're not able to communicate well no it's actually a systemic inequality institutionalized and it benefits groups of this pop of the population and actually it's to the disadvantage of uh, of others and i think that's that's a major important common starting point for all of us mm -hmm. so if you look globally if you were in uh, sweden in in uh, the 18th century or in uh, canada uh, they would have had similar situations where women were really uh, subordinated very badly and then they changed they improved where you have much better equality among gender uh, which suggests that with all of the problems that women have in our societies that they can't change, human nature can't change, and, but can political systems be changed? Can control mechanisms and power structures be changed? Your experience in the region is quite extensive and you've been involved in regional campaigns across the Arab world for looking at things like um, um, uh, marriage, uh, and inheritance, inheritance women's yeah. rights. And, yeah. uh, so what have you learned about how women and men and others working together can change these systems that seem like they don't want to change? Absolutely. Again, I, I agree with you. The, that particular change that we work for through research, because we did find out actually early on in this region and beyond that research is a very important arm for, for change through activism, through community activism, etc. I think the realization is that that kind of change that we want, that kind of reform that we want, cannot be isolated from actually a demand for a large change in politics, in the economy, in the way society functions, in the social contract, etc. Let me give you let me give you an example. Through this region, as as you know very well, we've passed through periods where there was huge paradox. Um, um, let me take the example of Tunisia, for instance. It, let's remember before 2010, it was one of the worst uh, autocracy, one, one of the worst dictatorships in the region. Yet they boasted 20% women in parliament. The most progressive family law, the abolition of uh, polygamy uh, since the 50s. Abortion is, uh, has been legal since forever. I mean, way before many, many other countries. But for feminists, Although these were gains, and I insist these were gains, and I think we should hold on to these gains as much as possible, it was always clear that these gains cannot be considered as gains uh, as long as you live in an autocratic dictatorship. Right. Basically, there is no such thing as a fake equality where you decide today that I'm hiring, I'm, I'm appointing 30% women MPs and it makes me it makes me uh, a democratic country. So, and that's why, Rami, the revolutions in the Arab region ha have been pushed, and I think we have the example of Lebanon, of the revolution of October 17th, they have been pushed by feminist voices, saying so. that gender equality is part of a serious democratic process, not a democratic process that, that is not inclusive, that favors some groups over the, the other. That's why, uh, honestly, Rami, I really think that things have been changing and have been moving. Very slow, granted, but if we just do a content analysis of how the discourse was from the 50s until now, what the ways in which feminist activism has pushed the boundaries, the ways in which feminist writings has pushed the boundaries. Yes, we're going through a phase now where you have to hold your ground and you have to hold on to these gains. 
But the discourse has changed enormously and it's making the patriarchal system very uncomfortable. I truly believe that this is what is shaking the system. That particular, very, I would say, very strong change in the narrative, very clear demands. We're no longer talking about women's issues only, we're talking about a global reform. So your involvement over the uh, years has included a lot of international work as well as regional and local in Lebanon. Do you find that the interaction with uh, international groups, whether they're NGOs or UN agencies or, or binational aid groups or whatever they may be, um, that that is actually productive or do you find that it is constrained by cultural particularities? or religion, or tribalism, or sectarianism, like we have here. Where can the global and the local really work together, and where are they uh, constricted? Again, I like this question. Yes, we do talk about that kind of global feminist solidarity, uh, feminists from the global south and feminists from the global north, but that's not to say that there are no tensions, there aren't any tensions. I think the world over, and especially the global north, the remnants of the colonial mindset are still there, even especially within the feminist movement. There are a lot of international tensions. We certainly don't see eye to eye on a number of things. Many of us do not partake with Sandberg's view of the lean-in, her lean-in theory. Yes. Uh, there are issues with capitalism and feminism. There are issues in terms of how somebody like a white woman politician in the United States would view gender equality within her own paradigm of neoliberal capitalistic uh, view of the world and how this actually translates into the way uh, she would see a woman of color within her own country mm -hmm. and outside of her own country. So these tensions really exist and these tensions are being debated, there are fights, some of us do not speak with each other because <laughs> honestly uh, that's why, you know, I, I've, I've, th there's a wonderful um, manifesto written by two wonderful feminists called, one is Nancy Fraser and one is Titi Bhattacharya, I'm sorry for the name, and it's called Feminism for the 99%. And I would urge every single person who wants to understand these global linkages, the links between global politics, neoliberalism, and how uh, women, what are the lived realities of women under these systems? What are the lived realities of uh, the 99%? Not of the, with all due respect, not of the uh, Sheryl Sandberg and the Hillary Clintons of this world who do consider themselves feminists and maybe within their own context they are feminists. Mm -hmm. I, I don't doubt that, uh, that they actually endure different forms of uh, discrimination. But I think different women have go through different forms of subordination and the different reasons for this subordination. And this is where many a time we don't see eye to eye. But that's why, and if you allow me, that's one last comment. That's why for, for us, particularly feminists from the global south, global spaces are very important. So spaces like the UN and again, Rami, there's a lot of this discussion and tension around this. Do you engage in these spaces or do you not engage? I think these, are, these spaces are as much ours as they are somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And I think the onus is on us, particularly those who know the, how, how do you navigate these, because these are very complex uh, labyrinths, yeah, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're not for the faint-hearted. 
but it's but some of us are able to be in these big rooms uh, and fight. I don't think we should neglect that fight. It's one level where uh, some of us choose to be to be active, and I think it's a very legitimate level. Two decades ago, when we used to un try to understand what is going on, we realized that somebody makes a decision decision in Washington and it affects the poorest woman in Arsal here, in her livelihood, in her daily life. So that's why you just can't abandon spaces like this. Right. So that brings up the question of the uh, uh, upcoming uh, celebrations for Beijing Plus 25. Uh, and I know you've been involved in some of this planning and activities. Give us a little bit of background about what this actually um, represents and why this is such an important uh, milestone. The UN system actually uh, has, has responded to uh, the push by global feminists to at least visibilize and highlight that there's an issue in relation to women's subordination, that gender equality is a legitimate request, that actually states have, are responsible uh, for, um, for the provision of rights, for securing rights. So there was a process, you know, it's within Copenhagen, in Mexico, etc., which um, which culminated in 1995 in something that we called the UN Fourth Conference for Women. It took place in Beijing. That's why th my generation would call it, would affectionately call it Beijing, the yes. Beijing Conference. But that was the first time where so many of us were there. So many of us who were not government people, who were not UN people, who were not international agents, who were actually activists from the global south. There was 40,000 of us. Wow. 40,000 of us altogether. And it was a very tense moment, but at the same time it was, it was a landmark. We produced something collectively. We produced something which, looking at it in 25 years, you would say it could have been better. Yes, of course it could have been better. Back in 1995 we were talking about gender as a binary. We now know very well that this was wrong. We, we, we didn't look at uh, several issues. Climate, climate justice as it was was not on, our, on anybody's mm -hmm. agenda the way it is now. So of course it, there, there are gaps in this process. Right. But at the same time, it was the biggest convening of independent feminist uh, civil society in the world. Wow. And the world changed after 95, you had 9-11, yes. etc. So we didn't have that same convening afterwards. And this celebration, plus 5, plus 10, plus 15, has been pushed every five years has been pushed. It was replaced by other processes called the Beijing Review process, notwithstanding this thing. We came to 2020 with the confluence of several anniversaries coming at the same time, which were important for us. And that's why we thought we can't recreate the Beijing moment, but we're very concerned that there are issues that have been unresolved since 1995, added to new issues, and that's why many of us have been involved in creating a process that would lead to having a strong feminist voice from this region to take to Beijing plus 25, as and when it happens, then of course the uh, COVID-19 uh, hit us. But the process, I want to end by saying the process is ongoing. We don't know what shape the convening will take, but from the world over, whether the global north or the global south, we are in a process of preparation for a, a convening, regardless of its form, which will actually look at what we missed in 95, where we're still here and where do we want to go. Uh, so this is to galvanize a, yes. a new revised global feminist 
position or agenda? Or yes, absolutely. And also to address the gaps that we hadn't addressed in 1995. Okay, so from this vast global uh, endeavor over uh, decades uh, to your next project, which is you're going to teach a course at uh, UB this uh, fall semester yes. on uh, feminism and activism. and. Uh, so what are you going to tell your students and what do you hope your students will do with the knowledge that you share with them? First of all, I think I would like to demystify the whole concept of gender and feminism and bring it back, um, bring it back to our own lived experience. Because the, the thing about when you talk about feminism and, and gender, it's about us. It's about each and every one of us in this room. It's not intangible. It's about how you wake up. What do you do? How do you take your decision? Where does this all come from? So my, my aim and my hope and my aspiration is to bring these, first of all, bring, bring the concept, bring feminist theory closer to students, particularly at this age group, understanding where they come from and what does it mean for them to be, uh, to be a woman, to be a man, to be a non-binary. What does it mean? That's one thing. And second thing, I would like to, again, what we were just talking about now, um, Rami, understand where are the spaces where you can do something for change? On which basis? How do you work towards change? And then I would like them to think about how to take this, this further into their own communities and what mm. they can do about it. So I think that bridging between feminist theory and feminist knowledge and feminist action. But also, you know, there's, I want to end by this, the famous, uh, the most important feminist contribution is that the personal is political. There's no such thing as an isolated in individual. Th that doesn't exist. What is personal, your lived experience is a political experience. Right. So in your own life, in your activism, your research, your teaching, your public activities, your global activities, where will you focus um, mostly in the coming year or so? I'm not sure. I think um, I would like to focus... Um, I'm involved in a research with uh, a, a colleague from AUB, Dr. Faisal Qaq. We're looking at um, the experience of uh, women refugees in terms of the whole connection between uh, displacement and then uh, the lockdown and experience with the way they, they live and identify their sexual and reproductive health and rights. Uh, that's something we've just started. It's funded by IDRC. And then there's the teaching part and also the writing part. I think uh, I would like to spend the next five years making the connections between direct research on the ground, um, global uh, knowledge, linking with students, but also um, trying to... Because, you know, it's been like um, a little bit than three decades of, of work. With, during which you make, you make a lot of good connections throughout this, your, your, your life. And I'm very much committed to you know, working or engaging with younger feminists, younger scholars, feminist scholars in this university for which I have quite a lot of commitment, and just you know, expanding, the, expanding the outreach. The experience of the uh, demonstrations, the uprising, the revolution in Lebanon, 
and other Arab countries in recent years must have been quite exhilarating for you from the point of view of seeing a woman and especially young woman play such an enormous role in public and behind the scenes both. Uh, what's the main lesson you draw from what has happened and is still happening uh, in Lebanon and other Arab countries and what this means for the potential for women to actually achieve the things that they want to achieve? One thing that comes to mind uh, when the revolution started, we're talking October 2019. And remember, the last time something was happening on the street was because of the garbage crisis in 2015. And in a period of four years, and I think that is a very important research question, which I'm hoping students at AUB would think about. In a period of four years, the face of revolution and street demonstrations changed completely. 2015, although it was, I mean, the trigger was very important, what people were demanding was incredibly important, but let's face it, it had a male leadership, it had a male voice. Uh, you know, we remember, I don't think we should forget that there was one incident, and I'm sure you remember it, where two trans women were, uh, or maybe it was trans men, I don't remember, but two trans people, were trying to participate, same as others. They were beaten by other demonstrators. There's no way. So, so if you think about this and think about the face, the voice, the presence, the, uh, the narrative of the young people who led the revolution in, on, in, in October 17th, this is a major shift, yeah. I think. And yeah. it's a very, very hopeful shift. And I think there was a concert. First of all, I think for some reason which we have yet to investigate and we need to investigate, the voices are clearer, the voices are more mature, uh, the courage is there. Um, Human Rights Watch did a beautiful uh, short report of the queer voices in the revolution and it's so heartwarming because it took so much courage in a context that is otherwise patriarchal and violent yes. and aggressive for these voices to come out and what I will always keep in my mind was a young woman, a young queer woman who was saying, this is my revolution, you yes. know, you're not going to hijack it anymore. It's as much mine as it is yours. I think that turning point, there's no going back from that. Right. Well, this is one of the extraordinary things happening across many Arab yes. uh, countries. We've run out of time. Lina Abu Habib, thank you so much for you, being Rami. our guest. Uh, Lina is Senior Policy Fellow at the Hassan Faris Institute at AUB and a Senior MENA Advisor at the Global Fund for Women. I'm Rami Khouri from the Media Studies uh, Program at AUB and I am happy that you joined us for this session of Professors at Work, a weekly show where we talk to AUB professors and scholars about their research and its impact. Thank you for being with us and join us again next week.